Today, um, as you're turning there, we have our, our Minister in Training, Julian, speaking, um, speaking to us, preaching from Isaiah chapter 52. Uh, I think next week we have Pastor Fred back on the pulpit, is that right? And uh, um, another uh, a guest speaker the week after that, so got, uh, Carl's got four weeks off from the pulpit. Let's, um, let's read from Isaiah chapter 52 from verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was, that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray and then I'll invite Carl to come and... uh, Not Carl. (laughs) What is it with names? I'll invite... Jules to come and preach to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can open up your word and we thank you that you have spoken to us now as we've read it and we pray that you will continue to speak as Julian preaches to us. Help Julian now to to preach with confidence and with power and with a message that will um, challenge us and help us to transform more into the likeness of Christ. Help us to know Christ better through this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Julian. 
Thanks, uh, Nathan. Yes, well, as you have noticed, uh, today we're uh, spending a bit of time in Isaiah. Uh, it was a couple of weeks ago I was talking to Carl about what we might preach, uh, what I might preach upon, uh, and he gave me the option of Leviticus, uh, so I chose something else. Uh, I think I'll leave, leave Leviticus to him. Uh, perhaps, though, I should have uh, chosen a little better because th- this passage that we're looking at today is, in fact, uh, one of the more difficult uh, in the Old Testament. Not because maybe it's hard to understand, but because there's just so much stuff here. Uh, there's just an incredible wealth of content, uh, and trying to explain uh, it all uh, is very difficult. Uh, you see, th- this passage is just so wonderfully and so comprehensively gospel-minded uh, that some people actually call it the fifth gospel uh, after Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Uh, according to John Stott, there's eight direct quotes of this passage in the New Testament, uh, making it one of the most quoted passages uh, from the whole of the Old Testament. And if you were to add all the allusions and the sort of uh, paraphrasings of this passage in the New Testament, then just about every verse, in fact every verse apart from verse 2, uh, is alluded to a number of times. Uh, it seems that no other Old Testament passage was as important to the New Testament writers Uh, in their understanding of the work of Jesus on the cross. And so there's a lot in here. We've bitten off a lot, uh, but hopefully uh, we can look through it together uh, and and see exactly why this passage was so important to the New Testament and all the wonderful stuff uh, that we can learn from it. Now, uh, this passage is is naturally divided into five stanzas, uh, each three verses long, The first one acts sort of like a prologue. Uh, It tells us a bit about what the passage is uh, about. It summarises it in a way. And then we have three stanzas of the main content. Uh, And finally, there's an epilogue, which sort of sums it up uh, and draws it to a conclusion. And so because the passage divides itself that way, uh, we shall do the same. The only difference is that instead of uh, treating the, the middle three stanzas according to their verses... Uh, we're going to look at them according to their themes. But hopefully all that becomes clear along the way. Uh, now what the prologue here, the, the first three verses, uh, chapter 52, 13 to 15, uh, is telling us is that finally God's plan is coming about. Uh, at this point in Isaiah, uh, we've been, sorry, Isaiah has been looking forward to the time where God is going to effect his salvation where he's going to save his people, where he's going to bring them back to himself and out of exile. And it's here in Isaiah 52 to 53 that it's finally explained how God is going to do that and what his exact uh, means of doing that will be. And when we look at these three verses, uh, when we consider them, we can see that the way in which God is going to work is a way that no one is expecting. God is going to work through his servant Uh, and we know uh, from our New Testament knowledge that this servant is Jesus. Uh, If you want a fuller explanation of that, I just wrote an essay on it last week. Uh, I won't give you that now, but you can get it off me afterwards if you'd like. But God is going to work through his servant in this unbelievable way, in this amazing way that's going to catch everyone by surprise. God's plan is so incredible that no one saw it coming. 
And God's plan comes in the person and the work of the servant. Now the first part of this passage, the first stanza, uh, the first three verses of chapter 53, uh, describes for us what the servant of the Lord is going to look like, how he's going to appear uh, to those who are going to meet him. Uh, And if you're following along in your Bibles, uh, and I encourage you to do so, you'll see that this picture of the servant, the picture of the one whom God is going to work through, is not very complimentary. I mean, this guy just, he doesn't look good. Run your eyes over verses uh, 2 to 3 with me. Uh, We see there he is a tender shoot. That is, he's young. Uh, He's insignificant, perhaps. Frail, easily trampled. The servant comes out of dry ground. You know, he's not from a, a famous place. He's not from a place you'd expect anything good to come from. Uh, the servant has no beauty or majesty to attract us. You know, he's not the sort of guy who grabs your attention. Uh, King David, as a boy, was said to be handsome and of fine appearance. You know, David looked the part of the king. Kind of like, say, uh, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. You know, those guys look like presidents should look. You know, they look like a leader. The servant, on the other hand, the servant in Isaiah, doesn't really look the part. And as we continue on, we read that he's despised, that he's rejected by men. You know, he's not even popular. He's not well-loved. He's not the sort of guy who would win an election. Uh, And finally, at the end of verse 3, we esteemed him not. Uh, Literally, we estimated him to be nothing. He was judged by men. He was found wanting. We we considered his worth to be nothing. Now, as I said before, uh, this figure of the servant finds complete fulfilment in Jesus Christ. And as we look through the Gospels, And as we read about Jesus' ministry, we see this being completely fulfilled. Uh, As we read in Mark 6, when Jesus goes to his hometown and when he he ministers to the people there, uh, they say this, uh, Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. You know, who is this guy? How dare he teach us? He's not impressive. Or in John 1, uh, 46, uh, it's said of him, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? You see, even to the people of his day, Jesus appeared unimpressive. They, they despised him for how he appeared. They took offence because he wasn't impressive, because he wasn't a learned man. And consequently, they rejected him. Uh, William Lane, uh, the Bible commentator, writes, their eyes could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness around him. They judged him by appearance on the surface and they rejected him. And that's the point of these three verses here. God's servant, Jesus Christ, came in such a way that absolutely no one was attracted to him. No single person saw him and decided to follow him on their own regard. And that I think is the answer to the rhetorical question that verse 1 poses. Who has believed our message? Uh, The message of course being about the servant. And verse 2 and 3 answer that question for us. 
No one has believed. No one has followed him. Everyone has looked at this servant and rejected him. And again, that's what the second half of verse 1 refers to as well. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, quite simply, to those whom he chooses to reveal it to. The servant is only known by those whom God chooses to reveal him to. And the result is this. No person can stand on the last day, stand before God and say, I loved him first. I chose him. No, the the case is for all of us, uh, as we sing in one of our hymns, I love because he loved me first. The only way we can come to love the servant is because he loved us first, because he was revealed to us by God. God's servant, Jesus, came in such a way that he wasn't recognised by anyone. He came in such an unlovely form that no one was drawn to him. No, it was God who reveals him. It was God who makes him known. Again, even in this smallest way, we have no part in our salvation. It was all God. He alone drew us to himself. He did all the work and we're merely the recipients of what he's done. The recipients of his love and his grace called to love him back. So now we've seen that the, the God's mighty arm of salvation is being revealed in the servant, in Jesus, but that the form in which he takes is such an ordinary one, such an unimpressive one. And keeping that in mind, it shouldn't surprise us then that the way in which uh, the servant works, uh, the way his life goes, is equally unusual. Now, if again you'll scan over the passage with me, you'll see that the servant had an incredibly hard life, a life full of suffering. Look with me at what he went through. Starting in 52 verse 14, we read that he had a disfigured appearance, a marred likeness. From verse 2, that he was despised and rejected, that he was known by sorrows and by suffering. From verse 4, he was stricken, He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was pierced and crushed. He was punished and wounded and oppressed. You know, the picture becomes pretty clear, doesn't it? The servant, Jesus, had a rough life. He went through incredible amounts of suffering and hardship and torment. And remember also that in this person, in him, was being revealed God's arm of salvation, God's mighty arm. You know, we might have expected uh, an Alexander the Great or an Achilles, you know, a hero, uh, a man of renown, a conqueror, someone powerful. And yet the way that God works is this. An unimpressive man, born in an unimpressive town, to an unimpressive life, filled with sorrow and hardship. This is the way that God works in the suffering servant. And again when we look at Jesus' life we see how closely uh, this is played out in it. How closely it parallels his prophecy. Uh, In Mark 8 uh, and in Luke 17 we read uh, that Jesus was aware that he would suffer, that he knew it was part of his ministry and his life. 
that he was destined for it. And we see how he did suffer in the ways, uh, in the hours, sorry, leading up to his death. Arrested, beaten, stripped, mocked, flogged, pierced with a crown of thorns, tormented, and crucified. All of this fulfilled in his life. And again, we might wonder, wonder at the way in which God works, why this is necessary, why it had to be this way. And yet again, so often is this the the, the pattern of the way that God works through suffering. I mean, the the Bible is full of it. Consider, Consider Joseph, for example, who was in prison for a number of years before God used him to provide for and to save an entire nation of people. Consider Jeremiah, the prophet, who was threatened with death, who was beaten, who was locked in prison and thrown into a well. And yet it was through all of this that God used him to proclaim his words to his people. Or even the Apostle Paul. Uh, We don't have time to look through 2 Corinthians 11 now, but in that chapter he summarises all the suffering that he went through for the sake of the Gospel. Beaten, flogged, imprisoned, stoned, shipwrecked. I mean, the list just goes on. And through all of this, he knows that it's for the sake of God and that through his suffering he can proclaim the Gospel all the more. And to a degree, uh, what happened for Jesus, for the servant uh, and for so many people through history is also the pattern that we can expect in our own lives. Uh, Jesus himself says it in John 15. uh, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And this thought is echoed throughout the rest of the New Testament. As he suffered, so will you also. Just about every New Testament letter reminds us of this. Uh, Acts 14, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as Paul tells Timothy, his younger companion, in fact everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (coughs) Friends, if we're going to live for God, if we are going to follow him in our lives, then like so many who have gone before us, like Christ himself, we are going to suffer. We're going to endure trial in some way, shape or form. There's no getting away from it. We might not know why, why we go through these things, but as Paul reminds us in Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And even if we might not see or recognise that good now, We know that there is good to come. 2 Corinthians 4 For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. The servant, Jesus Christ, suffered. No one then, apart from him, understood it. His closest companions fled and couldn't comprehend it. But we know, and as we'll look at further in a minute, that he suffered for us and in our place. Perhaps you've suffered much already, whether it be spiritual or mental or physical suffering. You might still be burdened at this moment. 
But know this, we have one who has been through it all and much more. He can sympathise with us and he wants to share the load when we take it to him in prayer. And know that God intends all that happens for good, even if it may be in the distant future and we might not see it yet. And that ultimately nothing occurs outside his will. And finally, know that Jesus experienced the ultimate suffering, death. And in doing so, he gave us the great hope for the future, eternal life with him, where suffering is no more, where it has come to an end. Hold on to those things uh, and have hope. Now as we look at this passage uh, again, if we were to sum up uh, the central point perhaps of this passage, and in fact if you're going to remember anything from this morning and from this sermon, uh, remember this phrase, in our place. It's very simple, three words, I'm not asking much. In our place. Uh, It's an important phrase, not only because it encapsulates the meaning of this passage, but really because it captures the heart of the Gospel message itself. It's the reason why the servant suffered and went through all that this passage describes, to death itself, in our place. Uh, Look at again uh, at the passage with me, Isaiah 53, uh, 4 and following. And note the repetition here. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took our punishment on himself. He was wounded for our healing. For our transgressions he was stricken. And for us, his life was given as a guilt offering. I mean, you can't miss it, can you? All of his suffering, including his death, was for us, was in our place. The servant, Jesus Christ, was our substitute. He went in and he took our place, took the suffering and death that we deserved. And it's this theme, the theme of substitution, that runs right through the Bible and right through the Gospel itself. Uh, John Stott puts it far better than I could ever hope to. Uh, He writes, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. I mean, that is just a great summary of this theme of substitution, which is the heart of our passage. We tried to claim God's position in our sin. And in response, he comes down and takes our position and accepts our penalties. Uh, There's a great story of substitution uh, and the stories of Father Maximilian Kolb uh, in Auschwitz concentration camp in World War II. Uh, One day a group of prisoners in the camp were selected for execution by firing squad Uh, and one of those selected was the father of a large family. And When he was chosen he fell to the ground 
And he begged the commandant to spare him for his wife and for all his children. But the commandant ignored him and left him there begging. But then Father Kolb stepped forward and asked to take the condemned man's place. And surprisingly his offer was accepted. He stepped forward and took the place of this man with a family. He stepped in and he died for this man. And instead of being executed by firing squad, he was thrown into a cell where he was left to die of starvation. Father Kolb substituted his life for the life of this man. And in many ways, that's a great illustration of the substitution that Jesus was for us on the cross. But it also falls short in a number of ways because Jesus didn't just die for one man, he died for many. But more importantly, Jesus didn't just die for a man who had a good reason to live. He died for people who deserved death. Uh, If Father Kolb had somehow taken a bullet for the Nazi commandant, it might be somewhat closer to what Jesus had done for us. Paul puts it so well in Romans 5 when he says that Christ died for us whilst we were still sinners. That is, Christ died for us not because we deserved saving or because we'd somehow earned it, but whilst we were his enemies, whilst we were still sinful. Uh, Theologians love to give complex names to doctrines uh, and this one's no exception. Penal substitutionary atonement is what we've called this. Uh, And it sounds grand and I know you'll remember that as well. But simply it means this, penal, he was punished. Substitutionary, in our place, an atonement to deal with sin and to bring us to God. You know, it's a complex name, but it's a wonderful thing. Jesus was punished in our place to pay for our sin and to bring us back to God. He was punished so that we can have peace with God. Uh, Philip Bliss writes it well in his hymn, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. And how well does that express it? Out of his wondrous love, he went to the cross to suffer and to die to set me free. In obedience, but not from duty, in willingness and in love he went. I mean, consider that for a moment. Uh, Jesus says in John 10, talking about his life, that no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Have you ever thought about that? What led Christ to the cross? Was it the will of a judge? Was it the soldiers or the crowd? Of course not. I mean, didn't he say in the Garden of Gethsemane that if he wanted to resist, he could call down legions of angels to come to his aid? No, it was no soldier and it was no crowd that led Jesus to the cross. It was no nail, there was no rope or chain that bound him there. It was love. His love for us held him there. His love for us caused him to see it through to death, to pay the penalty for our sinfulness. He died. He gave his life as a sacrifice in our place that we could be free. 
so that we could receive salvation, the removal of the penalty of sin. Only by his sacrifice do we have freedom. It's not by his death and our good works. It's not by his sacrifice and our regular church attendance. It's by him alone. As soon as we cling to anything in addition to him, we cheapen his sacrifice. We imply that what he's done is not enough, that it was incomplete. No, instead we have to let go of everything and cling to him alone. Uh, Rock of Ages, that uh, famous old hymn, says it wonderfully. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry, wash me Saviour or I die. That is the way we must come to Christ, with nothing in our hands, having let go of all and clinging alone to him, to his sacrifice of love. And so we come to the epilogue of our passage, verses 10 to 12. And it's here that the sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of the servant, is confirmed. God is satisfied by his offering. It's enough. The debt for our sins has been paid. And in fact, God is so pleased with the servant's obedience that he blesses him further. He glorifies the servant Uh, In chapter 52, verse 13, we read that the servant will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted on account of his wise actions. And that's exactly what happened. God raised Christ up from the dead. He lifted him up from the world and into heaven and he exalted him to the highest place. Uh, As Paul writes in Philippians 2, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From being humbled in appearance, from being humiliated in suffering, from being substituted for us in death, the servant of Isaiah 53 has finally been given what he deserves, glory and honour, and has been exalted to the highest place, And whilst in itself that's wonderful news, it gets better. Because as we read, his sacrifice will have offspring, that he will justify many, and that with those many, in verse 12, he will share the spoils of what he's been given. What God has been given, uh, what God has given him, sorry, he passes on to those whom he's saved. Not only then are we justified by his sacrifice in our place, not only are we set free from sin and its punishment, but we're also given a great reward, life, eternal life with him. And that's, that's the great wonder of this passage. For as it was with Christ, so too it is for us as well. Although there may be suffering and hardship, because of what Jesus has done, because he was willing to suffer and willing to die in our place, we too have gained a reward with him. I mean, we've done nothing to deserve it, but out of his wonderful generosity, he gives it to us. He gives us eternal life, a share of the spoils of his victory. He gave his life in suffering and in death so that we didn't have to. And now he gives a share of the reward that we might enjoy it with him. In our place he died, 
and in his glorious place we get to share because of his love for us. Love him back, have faith in what he's done and receive those gifts that he offers. Amen. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful passage uh, that you've given us and that we could look at in some detail this morning. Father, it's such a wonderful reminder of what Jesus has done on the cross and we thank you for him and his work. We thank you that he loved us so much that he was willing to go and to suffer and die in our place, that he was willing to give up his life to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to that alone, to cling to him, that we might leave everything behind and trust alone in his sacrifice and in what he's done. And Father, we thank you for the wonderful hope you've given us for the future as well, that he shares uh, his wonderful glory, eternal life with us, that he gives us this gift as well. Father, we pray that you would help us to cling to these things, to rejoice in them, and to rejoice in what he's done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.